From Socialist Alternative, this is Socialism Today, a podcast about socialist strategy and analysis. We are Emily MacArthur and Alyssa Porayo. And today's episode is on the Ginger Jensen campaign uh, and building independent working class politics. If you haven't heard of Socialist Alternative before, it's an activist organization. We build movements in our workplaces, schools, and communities to fight injustice, exploitation, racism, sexism, and homophobia. We believe that oppression stems from the capitalist system, a system that seeks to enrich and empower a tiny global elite. We put forward analysis and strategy to uproot this system and build socialism internationally. Socialist organizations approach elections in a variety of ways. Some say that engaging in elections is totally pointless, that politicians are bought and sold by the ruling class, and activists should focus all of their energy on building movements in the streets. Alternatively, there are also socialists who run in every election possible. President of the United States, governor of Alabama, dog catcher, whatever. They feel like working class people deserve a socialist option. It can also mean spreading socialist ideas in voter information pamphlets and planting a seed that politicians don't have to bow to the status quo. There are also socialists who think that getting socialists into government means that we can soften the sharp edges of the capitalist system and gradually win reforms until the billionaire class shares their hoarded wealth and power with the working class and poor people in society. But the question is not abstractly about elections, yes or no. It gets to a far deeper question. What forces change society? Those who emphasize elections might say that electing progressive politicians and majorities to pass progressive legislation is what makes change. Our study, from history, from the Revolutionary War to the Black Lives Matter movement, shows that movements are the motor of social change. For Socialist Alternative, we make campaigns, win or lose, about building movements. We see that working class people are largely shut out of politics. Corporate money sloshes around, even in local elections, ensuring that corporations and developers get their way no matter who gets elected. We aim to change that dynamic. We run serious campaigns where we don't take a dime in corporate cash. We build campaigns based on time and money from workers and students, homeowners and renters. We seek to polarize the debate around issues that matter most to working people, not allowing self-proclaimed progressives to hide behind nice words because we put forward bold demands that people can actually grab onto, like $15 an hour minimum wage, rent control, and taxing the rich to fund green jobs programs. Because while a candidate can serve as an excellent lightning rod for channeling the massive amount of frustration people have in a system that doesn't work for them, ultimately, we seek to help get people mobilized and organized. We think getting working people active in fighting for reforms and getting candidates who are accountable elected, that they will learn the crucial lessons of what it takes to win, and that they will find that while $15 an hour is better, A fundamental change in society is what is truly necessary. Mm. Right now, millions of people are looking for answers. Low-wage jobs are largely all that's available, and basic necessities like food and health care are increasingly out of reach for a huge section of society. One debate on the left is, should we work within the Democratic Party or not? In Seattle, Shama Sawant was elected and then re-elected as a socialist, independent of the Democratic Party and refusing to take any big business money. She helped build a movement to win 15 within six months in office and has since won protections for tenants. If you're interested in finding out more about Shama's office, 
check out her blog. Uh, it's at www.seattle.gov slash council slash sawant. And you can see all the badass stuff that we've won um, through building movements with a socialist in office. Yes, but now in Minneapolis, fresh off of winning 15 this past June, Ginger Jensen's campaign is an opportunity to show that working people are looking for an alternative to the status quo everywhere, that Seattle is not an aberration. Uh, this campaign is an opportunity while Trump is serving as a beacon for emboldening right-wing forces to build a beacon for the left, showing that working people want to support fighters of our own. So just a sampling of what we have for you today. Uh, so an interview with Ginger Jensen, longtime SA member and candidate for a Minneapolis City Council. Ginger was the executive director of 15 Now Minnesota for two years. She led a militant struggle and won the first $15 an hour victory in the Midwest. But before that, she was in the service industry for 10 years. We have an interview between Alyssa Yo. and Tyler Vassar. Tyler is a student at University of Minnesota and has been integral to building the Ginger Jensen campaign. He's not only head of the field team, he's out knocking on doors, tabling on the University of Minnesota campus, and even sued the city for taking away working Minnesotans' right to vote on $15 an hour legislation while he was a low-wage worker at Jimmy John's. And finally, we've got an interview between Manuel Carrillo and Socialist Alternative City Council member in Seattle, Shama Sawan. I'm Ginger Jensen, and I'm running as an independent and a member of Socialist Alternative for City Council in Minneapolis, um, in the northeast part of the city, where we have a lot of uh, you know working and middle class homeowners, lots of renters, but also uh, covers part of the downtown area where big business kind of runs the show. Awesome. So you know, I think a big question that we have is why run, and you know maybe why run now. Yeah, so over the last several years, I've been executive director for 15 Now Minnesota, and um, earlier this summer, our movement was successful at raising the minimum wage in Minneapolis to $15 an hour, but that was a really hard-fought battle. Um, it entailed initially trying to go for a ballot initiative and put the question of 15 to voters through a charter amendment, and we were trying to do that in 2016. We gathered nearly uh, 20,000 signatures, which was three times actually what was required to put it on the ballot. But uh, the city council then had to approve it, and the majority in city hall voted against actually putting 15 to voters. In some ways, that spurred the movement forward because it really clarified and polarized where city hall was at on the question of 15. But it required us to do a whole lot more organizing to build up the power on the side of the movement. This was despite the fact that a majority of people in Minneapolis actually supported having the opportunity to vote on 15, let alone actually supporting uh, a $15 minimum wage for all workers. Um, and ultimately, the pressure we brought to bear through building up strike actions of low-wage workers, uh, through union support, through the coalition that I helped lead and build of union community groups, even small businesses that were supportive, um, because they constantly feel the pressure and squeeze of big business, uh, you know, getting tax breaks in our city and in cities across the country. Ultimately, we were able to build up uh, the organizing uh, capacity and the movement that actually ultimately won a vote on city council for a $15 minimum wage. So winning definitely spurs you on. And I think, 
yeah, definitely seeing the city council initially being against it, despite being, you know, a Democrat majority. And that's, of course, after the Democrats had adopted 15 as part of their national platform. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they didn't adopt 15 as part of their national platform out of the goodness of their hearts, right? This is in the post-Bernie moment as well. How do you see sort of the Bernie Sanders phenomenon related to your run for city council? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think part of why I'm running as a member of Socialist Alternative and why running for city council now, you know, sort of as you asked, like, it was really all the hurdles that we saw put in front of the question of 15, and it was mostly coming from City Hall, right? And in many ways, I think the proposal we ended up winning was as a result of you know, the balance of forces, the strength of the movement on, on our side, and the strength and the power of working people in Minneapolis organizing around 15, but also a lot of the pressure from big business, the downtown council, the chamber of commerce on the other side. And they were doing everything that they could to water down our proposal. In some ways, it's reflective of the mood in 2016 around the Bernie Sanders campaign. We saw you know, overwhelming support and you know, millions of especially young people, but millions of working people across the country get out and vote for a program that called for Medicare for all, for free college education, for a federal $15 minimum wage. And it was all based on the power of a grassroots movement and individual donations, no corporate money. And it was really the establishment wing of the Democratic Party nationally that did everything that they could because they didn't want to welcome that program, right? They, they did everything that they could to stand in the way of Bernie uh, succeeding and that grassroots movement around Bernie succeeding. To me, that's really clarifying for, uh, of a couple of things. One, it's clarifying of how it's extremely important that working people build a party in our own interests and that is fundamentally based on our own power and that can do the organizing necessary to be able to win Medicare for all, that can win a $15 minimum wage. And in the aftermath of this Bernie mood, we've seen that push in California where folks organized to win a Medicare for all proposal that could have really, I think, forwarded the conversation about a federal Medicare for all proposal. And it was actually establishment Democrats that stood in the way there. So we see this time and time again, and in some ways it's a sort of abusive relationship with the party nationally. And to that degree, I think it's, it's important for us to do everything we can to take what openings we see at the local level, but these need to be linked to movement building fights and you know, national fights uh, for what working people really need, right? The question of police violence has been acute in the city of Minneapolis as well. We saw Jamar Clark was murdered in uh, Minneapolis, which was followed by an occupation of around a month outside of the 4th Precinct police station in North Minneapolis. There was, of course, Philando Castile. And the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, on the whole, too, is sort of pushing for developing, I think, an expression that can result in uh, concrete policies that actually show that uh, Black Lives Matter in our society. All of these things, I think, are intertwined in some ways with the mood of and the call for a political revolution against the billionaire class and big business. And that's, I think, what this city council election is really about, the fact that um, we can do a lot if we have representatives who are fully accountable to the movements and are fully rooted in movements that are actually making a huge difference across the country. The fact that uh, you know, a lot of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party stood in the way of this I think is very polarizing for people. And at the same time, if we don't put forward a positive proposal for the direction that that mood can take, while we have someone a reactionary with a billionaire-backed administration like Trump in office, like we need to be calling for Medicare for all to fight Trump care. And I think within that too, we need to be calling for a new party uh, you know, of and for working people, built by working people, of the 99% when uh, we see the establishment wing of the Democratic Party nationally fighting at every possible step of the way our proposals that can actually concretely improve the lives of working people.
Yeah, I've been able to do a little bit of tabling and door knocking for the campaign. And some of my favorite conversations to have are with, you know, you run into the students or people outside the grocery store mm -hmm. um, who maybe don't live inside inside our ward, but are really supportive of the ideas that we're putting forward. And I get to say to them, well, you know, Bernie Sanders really created this mood where voting's the easy part. Uh, yeah. What we really need to do, as he said, to win free student, uh, free college education is have a million students in the street. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to say, if we're we're gonna, if we just like we won 15, that meant massive mobilizations. Anything that we're gonna win that's gonna be a progressive win for working people is gonna mean mass mobilizations. And I think it's a really exciting moment, and I'm really grateful that like Bernie sort of struck that chord in national politics that it's not just getting in the voting booth once every four years, which is important, um, but that it's really like persistent involvement by normal people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think um, socialist alternative has done a really excellent job of trying to kind of probe these openings where and when we see them. I mean, we initially ran in 2013 three election campaigns across the country in the post-Occupy mood, right, um, where we were calling for 200 Occupy candidates across the country. And in part, that was, I think, a way of putting forward a positive demand to the movement as a whole, right? Like, we had to get into working class communities to actually talk about building up a program that could, I think, increase the overall fight back and the mood after we like identified through the Occupy movement that there was a 99% and a 1%. So, you know, we ran uh, Seamus Whalen in Boston and Ty Moore here in Minneapolis, and then of course Shama Sawant in Seattle, who we elected in 2013 and then re-elected in 2015. And I think what we've been able to do, um, and what Shama has been able to do with that office, is really amplify. Uh, the demands of uh, regular working people and social movements and then win concrete victories out of them. And it's, I think, fundamental to um, why we would try and show that there's an opening for left politics and for independent candidates that are rooted in social movements and are fully accountable to the working people that they represent. That's, I think, some of what we're aiming to do with this election campaign in Minneapolis. But also, you know, it, it is about concretely winning a seat that can be used by working people in Minneapolis broadly, but that also represents um, the folks in our ward. And in some ways, that's what's interesting about running in the ward that we are. I mean, it sort of represents Minneapolis at a crossroads, which I think is true of a lot of major cities, where um, we have uh, massively increased profiles of development and pro sort of, or, you know, for-profit big developers who are kind of running roughshod over the ward, and you see a lot of like working and middle class homeowners, renters, and students really concerned about this as highlighting our deep racial and economic inequities that exist in Minneapolis. Um, you know, it's been high, you know, high profile that Minnesota has some of the worst racial inequities in the country, and yet we see it as a city priority that our police budget be twice as much as the community planning and economic development budget, right? Which deals with affordable housing, it deals with small business loans, it deals with a lot of very concrete things that I think could actually help people preemptively as opposed to actually putting money toward, you know, the sort of de facto police presence that exists in our city that is trying to deal with the problems on the aftermath and actually exacerbates, in many ways, fears in the community um, when most people are just facing insecurity, you know, when it comes to their housing situation and they're facing rising rents. And then at the same time, they see that these for-profit developers are being given the keys to the city and able to do whatever they want, making millions and millions off of pricing working people out of our own communities. And I think that that's where we have a real opportunity to show that what we've successfully done with Shama's seat, we can do in Minneapolis, and that probably people can do across the country 
through building up these independent movements that then I think have candidates that are fully accountable to them. But critical to that, and one thing that we're really trying to raise in this election, and part of why I'm not running as a Democrat and rather as an independent and socialist alternative candidate, is that corporate money plays a huge role in this. And Bernie Sanders really highlighted this, and it was wildly popular that um, he refused to take any corporate or big business money. And in that way, too, in our uh, campaign, because of the profile and consciousness around these pro-corporate kind of uh, for-profit developers, I'm refusing to take any and pledging to not take any uh, developer money or corporate executive money in this race. There was a lot of um, donations given around the time of the 15 vote, right? Like all in City Hall, people take campaign donations um, from the very interests and folks on the downtown council who are fighting 15. And yet they were saying that it would be fine for them to vote, you know, their vision or their heart or their morals and would be able to support a strong 15. We saw that wasn't true, right? We saw that they were, it was those folks who, um, and the, you know, sort of right wing or establishment wing um, in City Hall that tried to the very end to carve out sections of the 15 proposal because of that pressure and because they were beholden to those business interests that they'd taken money from. To be fully accountable to working people, we can't have representatives who do that. You cannot possibly serve two bosses. You can't take developer money and um, you know we've seen tens of thousands of it go into Ward 3 where I'm running and also be accountable to the interests of working people. And that's part of what we're trying to highlight. I think my main Democratic Party opponent has not been clear about the fact that he won't take corporate or developer money. And actually, in a couple of debates, he said he's open to it and he would take a check um, you know, from anyone who would write him one. And I think it's really important that, I mean, you know, throughout the ward, we're getting a really great response to the fact that being fully accountable means... Um, being rooted in these struggles, being rooted in these communities, but mostly it means being accountable to the do grassroots donations, and that's a concrete expression of people being you know, excited about the idea of a political revolution in Minneapolis, and that's something I think we are raising about the connection between movement building and winning a real voice for working people in City Hall, someone who's going to be a, a fighter for working people, and that being accountable to them it means not accepting uh, you know, the sort of criteria of big business and what usually uh, they feel most empowered to push as their agenda in the city of Minneapolis. Totally. So I think we've given a really nice backdrop of what is the terrain that we're running in. And I think now it'd be really useful to kind of go into what have you decided to like be the main focus of your campaign, your like platform and big demands? All of this, I think, is, you know, we see an exciting opportunity to build a real political alternative um, in Minneapolis here. But I think, you know, growing off of the momentum of the 15 movement and really what we showed there, you know, that it was building up the independent power of working people. We need to talk about taxing big developers to build affordable housing here. We're in a situation where, you know, 5,600 units were slated to be built in Minneapolis in 2016, but only one in 10 were going to be affordable. And, um, you know, there are a lot of even small community fights around trying to leverage our power against these big developers. There's a real recognition that we need affordable housing, but the idea, again, that millions of dollars are going to these big developers and yet they're not even building affordable housing. The exciting part about this moment and the idea that we can really build up the movement to tax big developers and talk about rental regulations is that there's a group of um, renters really organizing against a high-profile kind of slumlord in Minneapolis named Stephen Friends. Um, and this group of renters in, in Quilinos Unidos is doing an excellent job of really demanding a tenant's bill of rights, tenants' unions, and rent control. 
because they see that there's the power of collectively organizing on behalf of um, working people in Minneapolis to leverage, you know, against these slumlords like Steve and Friends who are still making money off of his tenants despite the fact that there's mold in the apartments, there are pests, and he attempted to economically evict hundreds of renters across the city of Minneapolis. The city gave him the highest rated license to be a landlord in the city of Minneapolis. That shows that a number of parts of the system are quite broken. But the exciting part about, um, I think, these renters recognizing that they can collectively stand against him is that also they're putting forward the positive demand of rent control. Um, we need to first lift the undemocratic state ban at the state level, but it shows also that even the landlord lobby and these big developers recognize that rent control is actually an effective policy against them continuously making millions of dollars in profit, right? So they wanted to do everything that they could in the 1980s across the country to try and preempt rent control in uh, states across the country. Um, that's part of why I think it's important we organize to do everything we can to you know, win concrete victories along the way. But putting forward that demand for rent control is going to be one of the key ways to actually realize an affordable housing program in the city of Minneapolis. Folks have raised, you know, I think in a very dishonest way that it doesn't work in cities like San Francisco or New York, but the reality is it's the landlord lobby and it's these big developers who have poked holes in those policies over the years and done everything that they could. And in many ways, you know, uh, rent control policies and, and uh, units in San Francisco and New York have been a veritable lifeline for tenants who would have otherwise been priced out years ago. And the problem, and I think in a lot of cases, is the idea that rent control at this point with those holes that these uh, developers have poked through it, you know, isn't comprehensively applied in these cities. So we need a comprehensive rent control policy that also, I think, includes just cause eviction and gives uh, tenants more rights against their landlord so that, um, you know, they're not just evicted by uh, the landlord raising the rents by 100% or 400% that we've seen in some cases. We also need a stronger... Um, handle on um, how much time people get before their rents are meant to increase, right? Because... You brought this up at the debate. It's yeah, only yeah. 30 days. It's only here. 30 days. Yeah, you, you, you get only 30 days and your landlord can uh, raise your rent. I think we need to fight for at least six months um, so folks can... I mean, because working people cannot, you know, with low-wage jobs... I mean, 15 has been, I think, a step in the right direction toward dealing with um, a lot of the problems that working people in our city face. But uh, again, if we're going to actually put forward a concrete racial and economic equity agenda and deal with the question of affordable housing, we need to be fighting for comprehensive policies, and this being one of them, um, giving people more time before rent increases. And frankly, like the overburdened property taxes on working and middle-class homeowners in the city, like we need to tax the wealthiest in Minneapolis and these big developers to get more money toward affordable housing. We cannot continuously burden um, working people in our city to try and um, you know, pit them against the idea that uh, rent control policy is going to be effective. I mean, those two things, I think, combined are going to be extremely important in the overall fight to actually make it uh, a Minneapolis that's affordable for everyone to be here. So I think you brought up Trump a little bit earlier, but I think definitely when we're talking about elections and we're talking about Bernie, we have to talk about Trump, right? And especially a lot of the attacks that he's put on sanctuary cities and cuts to like HUD, um, a lot of this federal money that basically big cities have uh, just allowed that to be the only source in which they fund progressive things. And so there's no base for funding more uh, public transit or more public housing. And uh, when we're seeing these things come under attack, there's this real question of what do we do on a local level? How do we show that you know people in Minneapolis don't support a, a racist, uh, sexist uh, bigot in office? 
Yeah. I mean, I think we have to start from, you know, the overall idea that to be a true sanctuary city, it needs to be a Minneapolis that is actually affordable for working people to live and stay here and enjoy. And so to that, I think, degree, the, um, you know, Republican legislature, um, you know, there was a lot of, I think, anxiety around what kinds of cuts were coming down even at the state level. But we should be honest that it is the, the Trump administration that is allowing, um, you know, or sort of spurring and exciting these Republican-controlled uh, state legislatures to try and push for further cuts, right? And this year they were proposing like a 40% cut to the transit budget, which would have been devastating in terms of, you know, ATU union jobs and also like some of the local routes that, um, you know, working people use all the time to try and get around the city of Minneapolis. These types of proposals and these types of cuts, I think both parties have really presided over over the last several decades. But it's real that the Trump administration is more overtly attacking working people with the rescinding of DACA. I mean, the response to that, I think, though, is really exciting to see people getting into the streets to basically say, we won't accept any more deportations, but concretely, we need to deal with the question of stop and frisk style policing in a city like Minneapolis and across the country. I think with these overt attacks from Trump, you know, we've seen again that to fight against Trump care, we need to put forward a Medicare for all demand. And it is actually the organizing of working people and these responses to the Muslim ban and otherwise, I think that are the only real way to deal with a reactionary agenda coming down from the federal government. And is a way also, I think, of activating people against accepting any like cuts from the state level. The idea that some of these, uh, that, that people's health care could be, and some of the health care programs that states have tried to implement, like Minnesota, we have a Minnesota care program that is actually quite good for covering low-income people, but a lot of its funding is being, um, you know, sort of uh, now in a precarious position because of federal cuts. But all of this, I think, doesn't mean that we try and find piecemeal solutions in this moment. I think part of running for city council and running as a socialist and trying to build an office that actually fights for working people is that we can create a city that leads the way against um, accepting this, these cuts coming down on any of our um, residents, right? Um, I think when it comes to you know, fighting for immigrants' rights, too, we need to be talking about giving all immigrants voting rights in not just the city, but in the county, the surrounding area. We need to talk about driver's licenses. We cannot um, pit these ideas against each other. And then, of course, included with that, the risks that folks take every single day, just even you know, using the light rail. There was a high-profile case of a, a light rail officer asking someone about their immigration status, which is totally illegal, but you see that it happens. And that's what stop-and-frisk stop style policing really looks like in our city. To make these things stop, I think, is about really building up the strength and power and activating communities to stand together in a genuine way that just absolutely says we're not going to accept um, any of these cuts going through. And it's pushing folks to find um, not just the funding, but also to stand up in a concrete way um, against actually carrying through any of Trump's policies that are bigoted or xenophobic or racist or sexist. But again, like I think, I mean, and maybe this is a bit of a leap into kind of another subject, but... Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a socialist because I'm a feminist, right? And yet we've seen reproductive rights um, be, you know, uh, attacked across the whole country and funding for Planned Parenthood gets cut. But, like, I think how we fight for these things is on the basis of demanding that everyone have access to health care and, you know, health care that covers all contraceptive um, needs and covers LGBTQ people and actually allows for all services to be covered under like a Medicare for all policy. And I think, you know, joining these movements together is really the only way that we're going to win healthcare for folks all across the country and not continuously um, sort of 
have uh, individualized fights um, with communities that see themselves as not being threatened in this moment. I mean, that's what it means, I think, to fully stand up against a, a reactionary agenda. Yeah, one of the talking points I've had with, you know, because not only do we have a lot of support in our ward, but there's a broad support for this campaign, and I think it's because, you know, we've got Trump as this lightning rod, basically, yeah. for right-wing organizing to be happening, mm -hmm. and you can really appeal to people that we need a lightning rod on the left to say it's possible, just yeah. like we won 15 here in the Midwest, and that's going to send reverberations, you know, already we saw today targets uh, promising to raise yeah. their wages to 15 by 2020, um, but winning a socialist in office uh, in the Midwest, that means it's not just um, something that's possible on uh, for the coastal elite or for places where supposedly people are just like more open to these ideas, but that everywhere, including in the Midwest, that people are looking for an alternative to the two-party system, an alternative to status quo politics do dominated by those corporate interests. Um, and I think a breakthrough here could really be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it starts from, we're trying to expand, I think, for people the vision for what role our representatives are supposed to take, right? Like, we need to be just as good, I think, at the day-to-day -day tasks of the City Hall as building movements in the street. And I think it's having an eye for how there are tons of policies that are pushed through in local and state and federal government that have a dramatic impact on the lives of working people. And how are we going to really build up the, and sort of, I think, shed light on the fact that decisions get made in back rooms all of the time. And we actually have a role to play, I think, in, in building up the movements and the power on you know, the side of working people and in our own interests that can uh, fight for the society and the, and the world, really, that we, that we need. And in many ways, I think uh, winning this office here can have a dramatic impact on encouraging people across the country to build a similar uh, type of politics. Um, so I think it's really exciting that we're talking about you know, a campaign that's not for sale, that doesn't rely on sort of uh, uh, allowing the housing policy in the city of Minneapolis to continuously um, rely on the free market to decide how to, you know, price working people out of the city, but that in reality, uh, working class and middle class homeowners with, you know, renters and tenants can build up a real fight that um, ensures that Minneapolis remains affordable for everyone here. Thanks, Ginger. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. You are doing really, really good work. Thank and, you. And uh, people need to know how it is that you do what you do. <laughs> so uh, you gotta, you gotta help people learn these skills. We have to like turn this into like concrete strategy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All you, right. You got, you got the edge. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in terms of the ground game, I'm wondering how you feel your strategy is different than how a Democrat would operate. I think it's important to preface this with the fact that voter turnout in Ward 3, in the, the ward which we're running, Ginger, uh, is last election was 30 percent, uh, which is not something that we are content with, obviously. Um, so what really makes us different um, in many, in one sense from, from the Democrats uh, is our campaign. Is, we're building our campaign on mobilizing new voters. We're, we're building our campaign on mobilizing um, sections of, of the pop population that are normally disillusioned from the political process. Oh. Um, you know, so that's it's working class people, it's young people, it's students, uh, it's renters. These are normally people that uh, you know have precarious living situations. Maybe they move often. They're not 
super involved with the political process and there are reasons why, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that's something we're trying to change. Normally, it's I can choose this corporate candidate or I can choose this corporate candidate. Mm -hmm. And so I stay home because, mm -hmm. you know, I have to cook my kids dinner or I have to study, yes. you know, and we want to change that. We want to mobilize um, the, these layers of society that are normally not a part of the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one thing that really makes us different. All right. Oh, my God. That is beautiful. Um, <laughs> in case anyone is at all surprised here, this campaign is totally being funded by donations from working people, from uh, teachers, nurses, people who are students and renters, like not not the typical people who are donating to campaigns and, and funding it. Um, it's actually grassroots. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, being that politicians just typically don't reach mm -hmm. out to those people to help to make their campaign sustainable, right? They go for the big donors, right? They that this is, this is how they function. How does this campaign function without the 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 corporate backers, the the big business that usually makes elections go forward? How are we able to do that? Well, it, I mean, for one, you know, we we actually have to put into wor the work to reach out to, um, to reach out to people in the area. But for the corporate candidates, it's it's really easy. They have a few fundraisers. They raise big bucks from yes. the from the from the developers, from the big business executives, from the downtown council people. You know, mm -hmm. they raise those big bucks and then they're done. And they uh, and they smile and they wave and they get the they get the same votes that they always get. You know, we are actually putting in the work. We, we're 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 setting up tables and talking to people outside of grocery stores in their neighborhoods. We're we're on campus. We're knocking on people's doors. I mean, it also means that connecting up with with the, with groups and organizations that are, are currently in the, in the struggle for, you know, fighting for rent control, fighting mm. for affordable housing, those sorts of things. It's linking with those groups to push that movement forward. Mm -hmm. And I think in that whole process, um, it's exciting to people. And and that's, uh, you know, and so obviously then people want to want to support this work and they want to. Um, uh, well, yeah, when you. Out. When you meet with people at the door like that, that is um, nerve-wracking for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yes, how, how to get over the nervousness, mm -hmm. how to uh, effectively get across your message, how to um, be able to accept rejection and move mm -hmm. on. Uh, these are very important questions, uh, especially for a grassroots campaign yeah. that yes. uh, is dependent on turning people who have long been disenfranchised and mm -hmm. outside of the, the process and just not that interested, well, if we have any chance in hell of winning, we have to get them um, to become interested and to mm -hmm. be supporters. So how to turn people um, at their doorstep? Like, mm -hmm. how, how are you managing to make that happen? It was a, first, first of all, yeah, like door knocking is not easy, right? right. Uh, we live in a society that, you know, even when I was growing up uh, in my neighborhood, there weren't cell phones yet. People knocked someone if someone knocked on your door uh i mean so nowadays for the most part people know if someone's coming over mm -hmm. you know so it's there aren't just like people just knocking on your door without you knowing that they're coming mm -hmm. so there is that added layer of sort of you can almost call it suspicion people are like oh who's this random person at my door um so that is something to overcome at the same time you know socialism is not a dirty word anymore for the vast majority of the population mm -hmm. and so um you know, maybe people open the door with a sort of a suspicious look, like, what is this you know, young person with a clipboard doing at my doorstep? But as soon as they hear about what we're actually, you know, what we're fighting for and what mm -hmm. we're from, mm -hmm. um, you can see people's face light, faces light up. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of jumped around. But one thing I wanted to talk about was this idea of, like, it's, there's, there's no real easy way to, um, 
to get get over the anxiety of, of door knocking uh, is kind mm-hmm. of just something that you need to do a few times and then eventually you know you eventually get to this point where you're you know and something bad someone says just you can brush it off you you thrive you build build up I always build up my confidence based on the good, really good interactions that I have mm-hmm. uh, and then that I, that helps me push through the whole <laughs> the whole thing um, but just to get back to uh, kind of the issues we were talking about is like you know in the era of Trump people are looking for a way to fight back yes. um, the question is uh, which w- w- how you know how mm-hmm. which way forward mm-hmm. and you know our campaign has very clear demands uh, around taxing taxing the rich big developers to fund affordable housing okay. to fight for rent control okay. you know and the, these sort of Trump style policies like stop and frisk policing um, stopping the uh, you know uh, the, the deportation machine mm-hmm. um, these sorts of things and so in by fighting for rent control fighting for actual police reform and these sorts of things you are in in also resisting Trump in that process and sort of bring it all together people are looking for a way to fight back and this is a campaign of the very clear uh, message and a very clear way forward yes. uh, and I think people see that and they latch on to it mm-hmm. um, well with that how do you propose that this campaign will help to strengthen movements because mm-hmm. uh, one of the very regular critiques that we will hear is uh, how do you turn this campaign into a movement because one of the things that we will often hear is, oh, this is uh, an electoral strategy and it's not um, mm-hmm. going to bring the kind of change that we need, that what we need is movements. There are some people who will, and, and I would agree with them, would say, well, this, the, this campaign is a great opportunity in order to build the movements. But that on its own is not sufficient. Like, mm-hmm. well, how how does that get done? How do you turn uh, a campaign into a movement? Yeah, that's that is the question, right? One thing that we were doing, you know, we are we're doing extreme uh, extreme amount of outreach in into the not just the ward three of Minneapolis, but the, honestly, it's reaching the entire every corner of the city. Uh, we're building a base of support mm. in Minneapolis for these ideas: mm-hmm. rent control, you know, f- affordable housing, mm-hmm. uh, wor- renters' rights. These are not something that will come tomorrow. These are not something that will come immediately after once the ginger is elected, and so it's it's. We're building that base of support and working, uh, coordinating with organizations that are already in the struggle mm-hmm. to really build build the movement. Um, not to mention running you know, running a city council campaign, running Ginger. We have a, a broad, a much broader audience for our ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people are listening to us in areas that we normally maybe wouldn't think that we'd get an echo oh. um, through tradi- traditional sort of uh, leftist organizing. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, we. We're talking to working class people on their doorsteps, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're cooking dinner for their family. And here's someone coming, talking about affordable housing. They're seeing their neighborhoods uh, gen- rapidly gentrifying mm-hmm. before their very eyes. They mm-hmm. see the to- condo towers go up at one after another. They're so ugly. They, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about their how, how they look another time. What really gets me is that, you know, it's like studios going for $1,400 a month. Yeah. Well, that's what makes them so ugly. The architecture <laughs> yeah, exactly. is not optimal, but no, 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 it's the cost. And so, yeah, you, you know, this uh, we're building that base of support. This is this is a base that they're not going to forget that there was a socialist, independent mm-hmm. socialist running on taxing the big developers to fund affordable housing, yes. running on actual, you know, to actually fight in the interests of working class people, mm-hmm. uh, people aren't going to forget that. You know, we're we're building a base of support for these ideas, and you know, we're not going to stop, win, lose, draw, 
we're going to continue the struggle and the movement forward for uh, affordable housing, first and foremost, but obviously these other movements um, against police brutality in Minneapolis, these sorts of things. All right. Keep watching Minneapolis. <laughs> Tyler, we all thank you for your work and dedication. Thank you so much. Okay. So we're in City Hall, um, and I know it's a busy time for you. Uh, we're in the middle of the budget season, so I want to thank you for taking some time to talk to us today. So as you know, uh, as you've been probably seeing over the last couple of years, and particularly the last couple of months, right, our country seems to be in a very interesting political climate, but both here in Seattle and generally across the country, right? Uh, in the 2016 elections, we saw both the rise of the likes of Donald Trump and the likes of Bernie Sanders, uh, both relative outsiders uh, to mainstream politics uh, and from the mainstream political parties, right, who to varying degrees have benefited from the disillusionment in both uh, the big political parties, right? And later on in our discussion, I'd like to touch on the Ginger Jensen campaign in Minneapolis that Socialist Alternative is running, and also briefly on the John Grant campaign here in Seattle. But you yourself, right, have not only been elected, but you've been re-elected to the Seattle City Council, winning as an out and open socialist, independent, both the Democratic and the Republican parties, taking no corporate cash and no money from big developers. So I'm curious, I think, framing the, the conversation around that, what, if you give me an example that shows the importance of independent politics and the important gains that it can win for uh, real, ordinary working people. So as you correctly said, Manuel, we, we stand at an important historic juncture where uh, we've, we've passed from an era of really uh, very um, sort of demoralized social movements to an era where social movements are now in, in the ascendancy. You mentioned the United States, and of course we can even see this globally. Mm. You can see there are tectonic events happening in Catalonia with the right. independence referendum having just happened. And uh, young people especially in many countries feeling sort of disenchantment with what's on offer through the status quo of the system. Uh, many of them do identify it as capitalism and looking for something different and certainly politicizing and radicalizing in a bigger way than we have ever seen in our lifetimes. And uh, as you said, you know, Bernie Sanders ra ran as a self-proclaimed socialist last year, and he ignited a fire among a lot of millions of people, but especially young people. And he ran a, a campaign calling for a political revolution against the billionaire class at the very moment when people were starting to sit up and take notice of what was going on in the world. The Occupy movement had just happened. And when Sanders called for taxing Wall Street to fund education, university education, single-payer healthcare, Medicare for all, a vision for a really humane society, it really spoke to a lot of people. And it, it showed you how out of touch the mainstream, you know, the, the corporate parties have been. and. Even before Bernie Sanders ran, Socialist Alternative, coming out of the Occupy Movement activism, recognized that we are stepping into a new period and that there is much more openness for radical left politics than there was even a few years before. And mm. we wanted to test the ground. And remember, in 2012, when we ran our first campaign against Frank Chow for State House, which we didn't win, but we did well enough that we, it gave us momentum for our 2013 city council campaign, which we did win. At that time, 
in 2012, uh, the, uh, the narrative that was offer, on offer from political pundits and the media was, well, you know, the, the Occupy movement happened, that's great and all, but let's now all hunker down and vote for Obama again. But it was clear that, you know, obviously Obama won that election, but it was clear that the excitement was no longer there. You know, young people right. were, uh, those still uh, struggling with the question of the Democratic Party, as they still are, are starting to really be angry against corporate politics and looking for some for an alternative. And it was that moment at which we thought we should run a campaign that would provide an example of an alternate kind of politics. What does it look like when you have a candidate and an organization and a movement that is truly dedicated to the needs of working people, the marginalized, the Absolutely. oppressed, and vulnerable, right? So as you said, we ran taking no corporate money. And also we pledged that if I was elected, the six-figure salary that the city council gives me, we would uh, that I would take home only the average worker's salary, and the rest right, after taxes right, right. would be would be um, would be given to a solidarity fund in and for social movements. And I remember uh, one woman uh, during the campaign. You know, I was tabling one time with our campaign leaflet, and she uh, looked at me from a distance, and then she came towards me. And I thought she was going to be really, you know, she was going to say, "I don't like that you're socialist," but she actually said, "Are you for real?" Meaning, is this actually happening? That's Can fantastic. we actually have a candidate who fights for working people and who doesn't apologize for that? And I think that's the spirit on, on, on the basis of which we mobilized many people who aren't habitual voters mm -hmm. because they don't see anything worth voting for. And then we won the election. And then I think, uh, without a doubt, the, the victory on $15 an hour, where Seattle became the first major city to win 15 was a huge example of how you can win victories by both refusing to be marginalized as a radical politician, but also refusing to be co-opted at the same time. Right. And you do that by asking a very important question. Where do you go? If you are an elected representative who is elected by a movement, by social movements, and has to be accountable for movements, and has to win victories for movements, where do you go for your power? You don't mm. build power by trying to make deals and getting majority votes or by just talking privately to other elected officials who belong to the political establishment. Instead, you go to the people. You go to working people who want to fight with you, and you build momentum there, and that's the basis on which we won 15. But another really important example I can give of how we use a different approach is last year, the city council and the mayor, at least the majority of the city council and the mayor, they... Uh, wanted very much to push towards spending $160 million on what came to be known as a police bunker, which was a very, really fancy new building for the North Police Precinct. And there was a huge movement by, uh, you know, that, that sort of was led by activists of color, primarily the Black Lives Matter movement, and they built the Block the Bunker campaign that my office and Socialist Alternative was part of, you were part of that. And we, you know, our Block the Bunker campaign said that there is no way you're going to spend $160 million on an unnecessary bunker when we have so many of the needs of working people unmet. Right. And that campaign was successful. And what Socialist Alternative did through our office, through our council office, we took that momentum to build a thousand, uh, build a thousand homes campaign using that money. We didn't win all of it, but we won a huge chunk. We won $29 million last year for affordable housing where there were no dollars to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so I think that illustrates how if uh, how you can um, sort of use both social movements, m socialist organizations, activists, our own elected office 
together to win victories against the political establishment. Right. And I think that's quite powerful. I think that particularly the point uh, you mentioned on where do you base your power, right? I feel the traditional political uh, formula would say is you need, you know, five or six votes out of out of this many. And how can we, you know, either compromise or cut a deal with, with this with this council member or that council member uh, to make them feel comfortable with what what will we'll ultimately land on, right? But can lead to watering down the demands and the needs of, of the community. And so you mentioned a little bit the, the Fight for a Thousand Homes uh, campaign rate that ultimately landed with 20, uh, $29 million going towards affordable housing instead of the police precinct. But I'm curious if you could speak to uh, the Carl Hagland Law, which I think is, uh, to me, one of the more inspiring victories in the last couple of years where ordinary tenants got together and organized uh, to be back their landlords. And maybe speak a little bit about how that organizing happened and how you worked in conjunction uh, with them. I agree with you, Manuel. That was truly an inspiring victory, and I, uh, I have a smile on my face every time I think about it. And as you said, it really began with ordinary people, working people, actually working people facing very difficult circumstances in their lives, making very low wages, who decided enough was enough and they were not going to accept their circumstances and they wanted to fight back. So it started with uh, a working class Somali woman, immigrant woman named Sarah uh, Farah, Saro Farah and Osman Osman, another working class Somali immigrant man. They all, uh, you know, they lived in apartment units in a building in South Seattle, you know, in, in Rainier Beach. And they were experiencing this really, really bad situation where they ha their landlord, Carl Haglin, had out many, many, later we found out 220 outstanding housing code violations, including roach and rat infestation, heating and cooling equipment not working, uh, gas stoves that were not working, you know, cooking stoves that were not working, many, many serious violations that, that were both health hazards and created real difficulties for in their lives. For example, I remember Saro telling me one of her children had become asthmatic because of the conditions mm -hmm. in the apartment. But the, but, the, but the insult upon injury was when Carl Hagelin sent them letters that said their rent was going to go up. Rent increase. Yes. And, and they asked, the tenants asked a very logical question. They said, how is it that our landlords can legally raise our rent when there are such serious outstanding housing court violations? How can this even be legal? So they approached Councilmember Bruce Harrell's office, who, uh, who's the councilmember who presides on that district. They got no response. And then their re request having fallen on deaf ears from, uh, from corporate politicians, they came to us and we immediately we we went and visited the units the same day. The next day we went along with Councilmember Nick Lakata, former Councilmember Nick Lakata, who was uh, on the city council that year, and we uh, launched a press event where we highlighted the issues. We had the media come and video those units mm -hmm. so that people it would it could be exposed to the public eye the 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 terrible conditions that these tenants were exposed to and the temerity that the landlord had to increase their rent in the face of that. Mm -hmm. And to my own surprise, I found out that actually that was legal. And so we had to fight for what came to be known as the Carl Hagelin Law, which is now a law in place in Seattle City, which says that landlords cannot increase rents legally while there are serious outstanding housing code violations which was a really important victory. And the reason it happened was because ordinary working people decided that they were too tired and too angry to accept their conditions. They wanted to fight back. 
and they had an elected official, elected representative who was willing to stand shoulder to shoulder to them, with them. And Socialist Alternative, the Somali immigrant community, mm -hmm. people of color activists, we all joined together uh, and we fought for this. And I have to say at that time, when we first brought that issue to City Hall, other than a couple of council members, most of the elected officials, including the mayor, were, you know, their first reactions were, well, what about the landlords? You know, what, what, what do we do about the landlords? And, you know, we, we responded to those kinds of, those kinds of uh, statements by actually bringing a lot of good landlords on our side who testified on the side of tenants and said that, you know, I'm a landlord, I don't gouge my tenants, and I would never tolerate such conditions, living conditions for my own tenants, and that uh, if there are landlords that are making massive profits on the backs of their tenants, then they have to be prohibited from doing so. And so we, we built a strong movement to win Carl, the Carl Hagelin Law. And in fact, uh, because of that momentum, we also ended up uh, then later building on it through our movement and won the uh, cap on move-in fees, which was another huge victory because it actually makes a material difference in whether or not you can move into a new unit as a tenant because moving in, if without that new uh, approach, would cost five thousand to eight thousand dollars typically for a lot of renters. And you know how many renters in Seattle have that much money, you know, put away? You know, we we are basically many of us living from page, paycheck to paycheck. But the reason I mentioned the move-in fee mm -hmm. uh, victory in addition to Carl Hagelin is because after all of that. Uh, what we heard from a former real estate lobbyist who retired after, you know, earlier this year, right. who said that, you know, the real estate lobby, meaning the lobby that represents the interests of big developers and big real estate corporations, not your small landlord, uh, he said that they spent, he was being, you know, in a, in a rare moment of honesty because he's in retirement now, he said um, that uh, they the, the real estate industry had, a lobby had spent, several thousand dollars on City Hall in the last few years, and every dollar was wasted because the council members who privately had given him promises that no, no such laws would get passed, they had to bend to the will of social movements. And he said that this was happening because of the Red Army that was showing up in Seattle. And I think this is a good example of where our political enemies give us our the best compliments. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think we've talked about it over the last couple of questions here, right, but it, it seems like really the, the, the elevating of social movements and ordinary uh, working people's voices has really brought and changed the, the politics in the city to, uh, by a large degree and has really allowed for some fantastic gains, whether on, uh, you know, a stronger $15 minimum wage, the Carl Hagelin Law, the $29 million. But I'm curious, there's a lot of well-spoken well progressive Democrats, uh, you know, all across the country and here in Seattle, taking into account the, the social movements. What in, in what other ways is your office, is, uh, is your position, uh, yet this independent position that you have on city council, how is that different than, than the, the well-spoken progressive Democrats? What, what sets you apart? I think that's uh, what, what you're asking sort of touches on a very, very important point that needs to be clarified and discussed in our social movements, which is what is the most strategic and principled and effective approach that our social movements can use. And I think it, it sort of relates to, Manuel, what you just said a few minutes ago, which is uh, how our, uh, our, our approach is different than the approach of many well-meaning politicians, some of whom are in City Hall right now, who 
from a morality standpoint, agree that renters should have affordable housing, that we should make Seattle less unequal, that it's only it's becoming a playground for the wealthy. They agree with that in principle. Right. But then when it comes to winning social change that will benefit the vast majority of working people in Seattle, the strategy that they use is exactly what you mentioned earlier, which is uh, that of uh, you know reaching a compromise on the basis of what's acceptable to the political establishment. So, you know, rather than uh, building a social movement that brings pressure to bear on City Hall, trying to work the back rooms, you know, with, with, with this conviction that if only I had the best kinds of arguments and the best manner possible, then I could win over all these politicians and get five votes. And no doubt, to pass a law, of course, you need five votes. I mean, that goes without saying. Right. But it's a question of strategy. How do you win victories? So I can, you know, just to give you a concrete example, starting with $15 an hour, which was our first major victory, I can tell you, having been here uh, personally, that if we, meaning myself and Socialist Alternative through our office, if we had used that strategy of first trying to get five votes, making sure that every politician in City Hall was happy with us and we weren't angering them in any way, then I can promise you we would not have won $15 an hour. Because when we first came here, some of the council members openly said to me, you're not, you know, it's great and all that you won, you know, you roused your rabble and you won the election, but we're here to tell you that City Hall works on our terms and you're not going to win 15. I was actually told that by two of the council members uh, within a few weeks of having taken office in, mm. on the city council. And that was an example of how if you... Uh, if you accept the terrain that is created by establishment politicians, and if you say, well, I, I'll try to make the best argument to them, I'll try to be nice to them, and I will, I will win them over, then you can't win these victories because ideologically they're, they're not on your side. They're not, they're, it's not that they secretly wanted 15 always, but they just had a better way of getting to it. Right. They were opposed to 15. I heard, I heard them making such dehumanizing comments about uh, workers, you, you know, have, having the courage to demand at least $15 an hour. One time there was a worker who, who was in tears and talking about how she worked, uh, a, you know, she worked at McDonald's and she could barely make ends meet and she did not have enough money left over every month even to buy a few trinkets for her little daughter. And I witnessed one of the council members saying, to her, oh, you can get a second job, can't you? I wow. mean, the inhumanity that goes with that position when you when you are, are a politician, establishment politician, who who feels that your m most important duty is to keep your corporate donors and the Chamber of Commerce happy, that inhumanity has to be challenged. And uh, we should not cater what our movement is willing to fight for to that, that vision. In, in fact, we should fight for a vision for a, of, of a better society. And it was that vision that made sure that we as socialists, as workers, as unions, as activists, you know, we built the 15 Now campaign. And the strategy that we used in 15 was a very important one because, remember, the mayor uh, set up a, a a committee for $15 an hour, which was half full of big business, big developers and restaurant owners. Right. And But what the strategy that we used was a very important one. We didn't say, oh, we won't join your committee because it's, uh, it's an unholy committee. We said we will join this committee, but on the basis that we will keep fighting on the streets. And so in addition to joining the committee, we actually launched the 15 Now Grassroots Campaign. And it was through that kind of grassroots momentum and with the credible threat of the ballot initiative that we finally won 15. And I think that ballot initiative 
was a, is a very important example of how the question you're asking is how are we different than other council members? We we as a movement, as a 15 now campaign, put the ballot initiative into effect by saying that if you, city council and mayor, don't pass 15 quickly, then we are going to take 15 to the ballot and have voters actually decide directly. It was the credible threat of that ballot initiative that finally forced the mayor and the chamber of commerce to come to terms. So in other words, of course we have to make compromises because living under capitalism is a compromise. Absolutely. You know, we, as, as Marx says, as socialists, we fight for every reform that we can and we hold up the vision for a better society, for a fundamental shift away from capitalism. We have to do both. And, but the way we fight for reforms is important uh, as to whether or not that vision for a socialist future becomes realistic is, is this. It, how do we fight for it? We, do, we, we have to make compromises, but we make compri compromises on the basis of what, what we can win on the strength of the movement, not never on the basis of what's accept acceptable to corporate politicians. Right, absolutely. And actually, I think that that works in perfectly, right, as we're talking about not making compromises and, and really spearheading movements to, to bring about the changes we need, right? In Minneapolis, we have Ginger Jensen, uh, a member of Social Alternative, a friend of both of ours who is currently running uh, for city council uh, position uh, in, I believe, Ward 3 in Minneapolis, who helped spearhead the $15 minimum wage campaign there that just recently won a couple of months ago. So I, I kind of want to take us from Seattle over to what's possible in Minneapolis, right? We've talked a little bit here about, uh, you know, the, the, the role that movements have played in Seattle and, and helping push through, uh, you know, very much necessary gains for working people. And it seems like that potential absolutely lies in Minneapolis. But, you know, I, I want to maybe bring it up out a little bit more, right? It seems like one of the, the bigger movements happening right now is the anti-Trump movement, right? Since Trump's election, we have seen hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, getting uh, politically engaged for the first time in struggles for LGBT rights, immigrants, right? We saw the airports here in Seattle shut down against the Muslim ban. And, you know, you, you played a role in those, right? You, were, you played a role in all of these uh, movements. You were at the airport as well. And so I'm curious. What do you see in Ginger's campaign? Do you see, uh, how do you think that Ginger's campaign could aid movements? How could Ginger's campaign aid the anti-Trump movement? I think that's a very important question. I mean, first of all, Ginger, as you said, uh, is a really wonderful example of a working class candidate who has already proved herself even before getting elected by helping spearhead the 15 now Minnesota movement to victory by making Minneapolis the first mid Midwest major mid Midwestern state to win $15 an hour, which is historic. And this was won on the basis of Ginger's leadership, the work of the uh, all the working class activists in the 15 now campaign, including the workers who've played uh, a role for many years uh, in the airport struggles in Minneapolis. And it's a great example of how we need many more such campaigns, especially at this time, because, as you correctly mentioned, the election of Trump has, you know, has really propelled many, many people who weren't part of movements into movements. And the airport action against the Muslim travel ban that you mentioned, and also the student walkouts that have happened since Trump was elected, is an exciting example of how young people want to come into action. And uh, you can see right now, the anger against um, Trump's attacks on DACA, the anger against uh, Trump's attacks on the Affordable Care Act, these are also uh, sort of igniters of new social movements, and we've already seen a, a lot of momentum 
around the Medicare for all single payer healthcare question. And Ginger's campaign is sort of situated in this political context where uh, there, is a, uh, there is anger against Trump and his bigoted, misogynist, xenophobic, anti-worker agenda. And that anger is in many ways being translated into the, uh, you know, the anger that people feel against uh, uh, attacks on immigrants, the urgency that people feel on the Medicare question. In fact, more and more people right now are becoming clearer that the best defense against Trump's attacks on the Affordable Care Act is, the, is an offensive strategy. By winning single-payer health care, we can permanently put a stop to all of Trump's attacks on health care. And so this is the consciousness around which people are uh, politicizing. And our message in the Ginger campaign in Minneapolis, therefore, is to uh, go to the doors, go, go door knocking, tabling, reach, reach working people in our district, in our ward there, by sort of connecting with them on their anger and frustration about the Trump administration, their desire for clear-cut social change. And one of the points that we are bringing up in our Minneapolis campaign is actually similar to Seattle, which is related to affordable housing. And it's a really good example of how social movements develop. The, the housing crisis in Minneapolis is not as well-developed as in Seattle. Seattle is it's a much bigger crisis. But what moves people is not necessarily the absolute level of the crisis, but what's relative, you know, what's, what's min the situation in Minneapolis relative to what it used to be 10 years ago. And clearly, there's a big divide between the past and the present, where now working people in Minneapolis are increasingly much more than before struggling to find affordable housing. And the question of affordable housing, the question of whether or not you take money from developers is now a key question. Ginger is very clear as a Marxist, as a socialist, as a fighter for working people. She has made it very clear that she is not going to take a penny from big corporations and big developers, and that she stands in solidarity with renters and ordinary people. And she is not only fighting for affordable housing in general, she is fighting for rent control in Minneapolis. That's fantastic. And it's a fight that we know uh, quite well here in Seattle and across Washington. So, you know, I think uh, I kind of just want to close with this, right? So we have you here in Seattle. We have the potential for Ginger in Minneapolis. And actually here in Seattle, we also have a, an, an independent democratic socialist, uh, John Grant, whose socialist alternative has endorsed. There seems to be uh, across the country more and more places where, you know, these independent candidates who are vowing to not take money from corporations or the big developers seem to be springing up. And, you know, as we also spoke about, there seems to be this uh, this increased, uh, at least political consciousness since the, since the rise of Donald Trump. We also see the frustration with the two corporate parties, you know, continuing to grow, particularly I think we can look at Bernie Sanders' campaign, right, where at the Democratic National Convention we also saw Bernie Sanders, Sally gets right, walk out of the DNC, and, you know, recently in Washington D.C. there was the People's Convergence. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, do you think that uh, all of this is pointing to something beyond the sort of these individual candidates here or there? Do you think there lies a potential perhaps for a third party to emerge? I think that things in American politics are greatly in flux. I mean, I would say very decidedly more in flux than they have been in the last two decades, three decades, maybe even four decades. And what are what is being revealed? Obviously, what's being revealed is the Republican Party is in extreme crisis. The fact that they can't control their own guy in the White House, that he's a, a wild card, a rogue element, it shows the fact that they, the Republican Party is, is quite discredited in the eyes of the majority of working people, but also that internally in, in their party they face a big crisis. 
but that crisis also uh, is being uh, you know we can see that in within the democratic party as well although in a different way the two parties are not the same but at the same time what we are seeing and you mentioned some examples of this is that uh, especially because of really being energized and mobilized by bernie sanders's campaign the message that people uh, wanted to hear and were hungry to hear and it was clear that they that that's what they were attracted to with bernie sanders it was that that we need a party that will actually fight for the needs of working people against big business that is why the whole slogan of a political revolution against the billionaire class really caught the imagination of so many people absolutely right but so so i think there's there's not uh, so the vast majority of working people people who are moving into movements i don't think there's any disagreement that we need a political vehicle for our social movements which will actually uh, result in candidates being elected and a party that will actually uh, work with movements and fight for the needs of working people what's not entirely clear for a lot of people is will the democratic party be that vehicle right and i think that we are in a different stage than a, even a few years ago uh, in the sense that i think corporate politics is as an idea is completely discredited in the eyes of a lot of people but i think i do also think though that at this moment a lot of young people who are angry at corporate politics a lot of the bernie crowd you know people who were who were campaigning or attracted to bernie's message last year a lot of them are angry at corporate politics but they also want to test out whether or not the democratic party can be pushed to the left so right now the 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 idea that a lot of people are grappling with is can the democratic party be moved to the left or do we need a new party mm-hmm. and i would say that for the moment you know heading into 2018 the congressional elections i think a lot of people a lot of uh, energetic well meaning intelligent activists will want to test out the democratic party route and the role that socialist alternative is playing into this process and that's why we were at the people's convergence conference is that we are completely in solidarity with those who want to fight corporate politics and that you know they're absolutely right that we need to do that but we also are honest with them and say that we don't believe that the democratic party will be the vehicle that it you can push the democratic party to the left because it's very clear to us that the democratic party is controlled by an establishment that is hand in glove with wall street interests and that it can't be dislodged you can't just dislodge wall street influence from the party in 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 an artificial way we will need a real social momentum to make that happen and we believe that momentum can only happen through an independent party but i also think that we should not uh, necessarily be uh, be sort of hidebound in our thinking in the sense that i feel like one of the most straightforward ways practical ways in which we can push the question of left politics is to run independent candidates just like ginger just like john grant we don't ha- we don't we shouldn't be waiting for some auspicious moment when an independent party will be formed we need to show it by example just like we've shown in seattle that independent left candidates can be elected they can fight against the corporate democratic establishment and they can provide a vision for what a new left party can do and i would say there are many other concrete examples about this for example uh, activists the nurses union socialists you know they they've been fighting for single payer healthcare the initiative in california right. and who was the obstacle to it it was a corporate democrat anthony rendon who's the head of the assembly there so i would say a very good strategy would be for the nurses unions and the activists to not accept that you know that verdict from him and say that 
because you betrayed our interests on single-payer healthcare, we will run a very strong independent challenger against you and, and bring you down so that you pay the political price for, for having stood in the way of single-payer healthcare. I would also take it one step further. I would say that, uh, you know, the, the nurses' unions in California and a lot of left Democrats, DSA, uh, I, I think have the correct approach, absolutely correct approach of, uh, you know, having a litmus test. We have a litmus test for candidates absolutely. that we will support, you know, to, to decide whether they will actually stand with working people. But I think our litmus test needs to be a little more stringent. In other words, I think, for example, concretely speaking in California, it shouldn't be enough for Democrats to just say, yes, I support single-payer health care. The litmus test should be, are you going to fight with social movements for this? Will you break your ties with corporate uh, interests? Will you stand shoulder to shoulder with us, even if it means uh, being antagonistic to the interests of corporations and recognizing that you can't serve corporations and working people at the same time, so you have to pick a side and do you pick our side? So I think concretizing and strengthening the litmus test that we as a movement can place on candidates and demand that they fulfill that litmus test, I think it really will give us much more of a, a it's, it's a question of power, right? So you, you have to bring the balance of power on your side. And I think that's what Ginger's campaign is showing by refusing to compromise with corporate interests and staying on the ground and building movements on the ground. And that's the kind of approach we need nationwide. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you, Shama, for joining me uh, for this conversation. I know quite generous of your time, uh, particularly, as I said, we're in the budget season here. Um, I think it's quite insightful, and I, I really look forward to seeing, you know, the the, uh, the kind of work that we continue to, to do here together in Seattle and uh, the potential for Ginger uh, to continue the similar work in Minneapolis. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. Thanks for listening. You can read more at socialistalternative.org and subscribe to our newspaper. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook for up-to-date socialist analysis. And also, please consider supporting the podcast by going to socialistalternative.org and clicking on the donate link. We don't have any corporate sponsors. We don't have any ads. We depend on the support of working class people to do the work that we do. Yeah.